If you go on a ghost tour in Charleston, you're likely to hear the tale of Lavinia Fisher. She's often referred to as the first female American serial killer. She's rumored to still terrorize Charleston. Legends often have some sort of truth to their roots, and the case of John and Lavinia Fisher is no exception. Two bodies, two ends, and three executions. It turns out the holy city has a hellacious past, and the truth doesn't always come to light. But perhaps in this case, the devil's in the details. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. John's fingers laced into mine, and my breath caught. Memories of us as teens, love growing wild, like blackberry bushes, thick and sweet, with thorns of protection wrapping around us. Life had been hard. I'd grown rough and had learned to bite like the blackberry, luring people with honeyed beauty, but quick to remind them that no splendor is without its price. John's dark eyes fell on mine. Those same eyes had held me tenderly. He was always kind to me, even though I hadn't always been to him. A tinge of guilt crawled up my throat, tiny fingers gripping my neck, strangling me. I choked back the sobs. This couldn't be happening. The hangman motioned for us to climb the scaffolding. No. I clasped John's hand tighter. We were a lot of things. But we didn't deserve this. John brought my hand to his pale lips and kissed my fingers. I wrapped my arms around him, sobs escaping me. I didn't care. How could I leave him? He'd saved me from so much. From a life without promise and gave me somewhere to live and to make a living. He'd made a way for us to put food on the table. He let go again and walked up the scaffold, his body visibly shaking. Mine followed as two men grabbed my arms, fingertips pinching into the soft parts of my skin. I'm innocent, I said, like I'd been repeating since this whole thing started. John whispered words of comfort and encouraged me to pray. I couldn't be comforted, and neither could I pray. God was so far from a scene like this. Of that I was convinced. I remember so little, but those last moments, they were terror. John held me once more before we were pulled apart. The crowd was quiet, confused, possibly. I reached for them, praying someone would save me, anyone. Someone must have it in them to show me some mercy. But maybe they were still wondering if we were innocent. Or maybe they didn't wonder. Who knows? Killing is a source of entertainment, a strange curiosity. No one tried to save us. 
Their eyes blinked blankly at us as the hangman covered our heads. The sackcloth smelled rank, much like the city jail that had been our home for months. The rope felt scratchy and uncomfortable around my neck. My mind raced too fast to process memories of playing in a field beneath the summer sky, the world feeling so big and kind. Mom's favorite pale pink dress with tiny white flowers, her smiling at me. John stepping onto our porch for the very first time, his face so young and sweet. The way it felt to say I do, and that nervous first touch as a married couple. Yes, bad things had happened. We weren't perfect, and the world was not the kind place I'd imagined as a child. We needed to survive, and sometimes it was the hunger to thrive that motivated a bad decision. But we weren't killers. We didn't deserve to die. My knees shook, and I wondered if I'd be able to hold myself up. John had whispered. He'd always been this way, worried more for me than himself. He'd always felt that husbandly duty. All these months, he'd tried to find some way to save me while I'd been focusing on some way to save myself. Guilt of my selfishness threatened me again. I love you, I told him. It hurt like nothing else had ever hurt saying those words for what I knew would be the last time. I could barely breathe when he repeated them back to me. The sensation of falling came and a quick jolt cinched the noose around my neck. I suddenly felt cold. A heavy breeze blew and the world went black. John held a wildflower in his hand out to me. He had a smile on his young face as he took my hand again. All the horrors disappeared into darkness as we stepped out of the forest and into an open field with bright blue skies stretching wide. Before there was Bonnie and Clyde, there was John and Lavinia Fisher. According to legend, Lavinia, a beautiful young woman, would lure unsuspecting men to their inn and poison them with oleander tea. While they were asleep, her husband John would rob and murder them, dismembering their bodies and stashing them in their cellar. But one of their victims escaped, fled to nearby Charleston, and reported what had happened to the authorities. Legend has it that the couple had murdered between 20 and 30 people. The Fishers were charged for their crimes. Little is mentioned about John in the legend, but what is said isn't great. Most versions claim that he was a coward who took every opportunity to blame everything on his seductress wife while claiming his own innocence. Lavinia, hoping to gain sympathy from the crowd, requested to be hanged in her wedding dress, essentially painting a brutal yet memorable scene for onlookers and executioners. Lavinia had requested a pardon, but none came. 
She even reportedly chastised the minister when he came to save her soul. Allow me to paint the picture. A young and beautiful woman stood on the gallows, her spotless white wedding dress and Spanish moss overhead blowing in the breeze. Her features cold, frightened, defiant. Her dark eyes black with sadness or possibly guilt. It's impossible to tell. But then she speaks. The crowd hushes in anticipation of her words to the minister. Cease. I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them. But if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. The executioner, partially stunned but knowing his duty, places the noose around her slender pale neck. She snarls at the hangman and glares at the curious, terrified eyes below. The crowd expects a curse to spill from her lips, like a witch from some folk story they heard as children. But instead, she leaps to her own death, taking her own life and keeping the executioner from performing his duties. If she was a murderer, she continued her lot even to her death. That was the legend, but what about the truth? The Six Mile House was the inn that the Fishers owned and operated, located, you guessed it, six miles outside of Charleston. At the time, people traveling to and from Charleston were frequently robbed because they were either coming into town with their goods to sell, or leaving town with the money earned from selling those goods. Word of highway robbery spread like wildfire through the neighboring counties, encouraging people to do their business in nearby small towns rather than Charleston. This was causing a huge economic problem for the city. Not to mention, there were lots of rumors of inn owners using fixed gambling games to steal from their customers. So in an effort to stomp out all the robbery and reclaim their reputation, a lynch mob was created by Charlestonians and aimed at two of the most infamous inns and their owners, the Five Mile House and the Fisher's Six Mile House. In 1819, the couple's inn was attacked by the mob and they, along with others, were forced to leave. The mob then left a man by the name of David Ross to guard the inn in case the couple returned. And they did, with some help. The Six Mile Gang, as they've been referred to, came prepared to take back their property by any means necessary. According to David Ross's testimony, he was beaten by several people, including having his head smashed by the lovely Lavinia Fisher. He was not killed and eventually escaped. The story he told when he returned to Charleston began a chain of events that would ultimately end with the Fishers dead. The incident resulted in 12 people arrested and thrown into the city jail. The couple was indicted with assault with the intent to murder David Ross and was accused of the assault and highway robbery of one Mr. John Peoples. Highway robbery was a hanging offense. 
The city jail in 1819 was a deplorable and wretched place to be. The jail was intended to house only 130 people, but frequently housed 300 occupants. Serving as a prison ranging from debtors to the insane, it was a true horror. Many violent criminals or those who suffered mental illness were chained to a metal ring in the middle of the floor. Wood chips served as both bedding and bathroom. Needless to say, many people died of infection and disease at the hands of these living conditions. In September of 1819, Lavinia and her husband John, who had been placed in a separate cell together since they were married, requested to be moved to the debtor's prison where there was slightly less oversight by guards. There, they were reunited with a friend who was also serving time, and John and he began working on digging a hole out of prison. Using blankets as rope, the two made it out, but the blankets broke, sending John falling nearly 20 feet. This left Lavinia with no way to escape. The two men disappeared in the darkness, but they did not leave Charleston. No, John meant he was going to find a way to break Lavinia out of prison. Unfortunately, the men were spotted and apprehended only a few days later. Although the legend always makes John out as a coward, it's clear from the historical facts that he must have cared deeply for his wife. He had an opportunity to escape Charleston and death, but instead stayed to find some way to free her. There's also no record of him accusing her of anything. In fact, he seems to have maintained her and his innocence until death. Curiously, another piece of the puzzle doesn't align with legend. The evidence at the Six Mile House, which we will discuss after this brief promo. There, I'm Logan. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the new podcast, Folklore on the Rocks, where we talk about folklore and lesser-known creatures, cryptids, and monsters from around the world. So when we say lesser-known, we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like Bigfoot or Nessie or Chupacabra, just because they're discussed so often, and the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from. Every two weeks, we will be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature. And getting a little bit tipsy while we do so. But don't worry, we do our research sober. <laughs> On the weeks in between, we're going to be narrating and discussing folktales. Some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from, and some will be modern folklore, such as no sleeps and creepypastas. Ooh. You can find out more about us on our website, FolkloreOnTheRocks.com, on Facebook and Instagram at FolkloreOnTheRocks, on Twitter at FolkloreRocks! So grab a drink, join us, and come on, let's dig deep together. Authorities did not find bodies stashed in the cellar or any evidence of the couple's supposed violence at all. But there were bodies, two of them, both buried in the same shallow grave. One was of a man only a few weeks dead. Neither were butchered, as the legend would have us believe. They were only decomposing. The man had been killed by gunshot, and the other was of an enslaved woman who'd been dead for several years. 
Burying enslaved people in unmarked graves was sadly not uncommon in those years. But did the Fishers have anything to do with the death of these people? Historian and retired investigator Bruce Orr suggests that the man may have been killed during the mob raid, which aligns with his recorded estimated time of death, and little is known about the enslaved woman. Meanwhile, back at the city jail, the Fishers were introduced to Dr. Furman, a pastor, whose mission was to prepare them to meet their maker. Lavinia was convinced that the governor would grant her a pardon. The execution of a white woman would have been extremely rare in those days, and since there was no evidence of her having killed someone, it wasn't an unreasonable expectation to have. She wanted nothing to do with the pastor and instead put her faith in the system. What a mistake that usually is. John, on the other hand, seemed to be open to the pastor's words and had the pastor read his final letter at execution. Lavinia's fight for a pardon was helped some by a few very prominent ladies of Charleston. They too were appalled by the idea of executing a woman and gathered petitions to present to the governor. The hangings were originally scheduled on an earlier date, but strangely were pushed back. One reason that could have been was because of the concern of their souls. Another could have been because of a horse race that was to occur in February of 1820. Race week, as it was called, was very popular during that time and was the social event of the year. The government may not have wanted to sour the week with an execution. However, hangings usually drew their own crowds, and maybe they wanted to draw people in on multiple occasions. After all, where there are crowds, people are spending money. Bruce Orr, in his book Six Miles to Charleston, brings up an even more sinister reason for the delay in their executions new evidence had come out that maybe they weren't guilty after all. A pamphlet by Nathaniel Coverley, circa 1820, suggested that another person had confessed to the highway robbery of John Peoples. This man had been arrested for another crime, but had admitted to the magistrate that he'd committed the crimes that the Fishers were being charged for. He provided the exact time and place of the robbery he claimed to commit. He also told authorities how much he stole from the victim. This new information sent Charlestonians in a frenzy. According to a letter dated that year, most people now supported the Fishers and believed in their innocence. Bruce Orr also mentions in his book that John Peoples may have been given the Fishers' names by the sheriff in order to appoint them as the robbers. Peoples was not from the area and wouldn't have known their names otherwise, yet their names were added in the allegation, though the handwriting looks to be from someone else. The sheriff did have witnesses, though, so it's also possible that Mr. Peoples pointed out the assailants and someone wrote down who he'd picked. Unfortunately, when the man who confessed was re-examined, his statements began to contradict themselves, and a cloud of confusion settled into what cemented the Fishers' fate. The Fishers weren't given a jury or a trial. 
they were sentenced by judges to die. In a written account of the execution by the local attorney John Blake White, the Fishers are described as terrified, clinging to each other. The hangman is said to have been a cold, emotionless man, himself imprisoned and haunted by the terrors suffered at his own hands, and described as a horrifying creature. Lavinia refused to walk up the scaffold, so was dragged there. She pled with the crowd to rescue her, and when they didn't, she screamed profanities and curses at them. John reportedly asked her to make peace with God, but she still wanted no part of that. She was angry and embittered, a woman who felt like she'd been robbed of life and justice. And she did mutter the words that created a legend. Cease, I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them. But if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. Witnesses were moved by John's kindness to his wife as he attempted to soothe her. After being assured that no pardon was coming and she was indeed about to die, the weight of the news visibly crushed her. In her last moments, she finally reached out to God for mercy and peace. Dr. Furman, the pastor, was so overcome with emotion at the scene, he reportedly cried as he prayed to God on the Fisher's behalf. John wrote a letter which was read aloud to spectators and later printed in the papers that proclaimed his innocence before God and man. The couple then succumbed to their fate, their pure white gowns moving in the wind. They were buried in Potter's Field. John Fisher was 29 and Lavinia was 28 years old. It's difficult to say whether John and Lavinia were in fact innocent. Bodies were found, but there was little to tie them to the Fishers, with the exception of location. With highway robberies occurring so regularly, it's also quite possible it was a robber who killed and buried the man near their inn. Who can really say? What's clear is that the Fishers forever marked the memory of Charlestonians, so much so that legends of Lavinia are still told today. It's said that she haunts Charleston, and if she was innocent, for good reason. On our first trip to Charleston, my husband and I took a late night tour of the old city jail. When we pulled up, I was overwhelmed with how dark and decrepit the place looked. I really began second guessing booking this one. It was a spur of the moment decision and I hadn't had time to research or dig into the history yet. Once inside, a handful of us were led by our guide down dark corridors into large open bays, all dark and humid in the summer heat. In one room, the lights were turned off, and I could have sworn that I felt something touch me. It could have easily been one of my fellow travelers since we literally couldn't see anything at all. But it sent me screaming, I'm not even kidding you, I screamed loud, the echo of it returning and jolting the people around me. I really wanted out of there. It was here that I first heard about Lavinia Fisher. 
Of course, they didn't go into great detail about who she was, but they did tell us a brief story about what had happened. I didn't walk away thinking she was innocent or guilty. Rather, I was just sad. Sad that these types of things had happened in history. And since I'm not an advocate of capital punishment, I always carry a heavy burden when hearing of people walking to their death. I had a dream many years ago of being a woman who was sentenced to death. And the feeling I felt in this dream of knowing what was about to happen and having no choice but to move toward my own demise changed my heart forever. It's unnatural and the deepest horror I've ever experienced, even if it was only a dream. The old city jail is said to be haunted by Lavinia, her spirit still tied to the place where she spent her days before her execution. Many guides will tell you that she has also been spotted at the Unitarian Cemetery. Remember episode one when I talked about the lady in white possibly being Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee? Well, Lavinia is also a possible contender for the Lady in White, according to our guide. That's unlikely, though, because Lavinia wasn't buried there. She is buried beneath what is now the Medical University of South Carolina. After researching this strange and largely fictitious legend, I'm left wondering, History has gaps sometimes, lapses in judgment, justice, and truth. The woman who promised to deliver Charleston's messages to hell may very well have found heavenly peace. Of course, if you believe those who've claimed to see her, she may still be giving Charleston hell by haunting. We may never know. Fabled was produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles, with music by Kevin McLeod. If you'd like a more in-depth look into the Fisher's case, I highly recommend picking up a copy of Bruce Orr's book, Six Miles to Charleston. It was a great source for this episode. You may also visit the website, fablecollective.com, for additional reading and sources. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll consider leaving a star rating or review. Each review is read and greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to support the show and receive my forever gratitude, please visit patreon.com slash fablecollective. You can always find the latest about the Fable books and podcasts on our social media at Fable Collective. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>